the meat industry is a two trillion US dollar industry globally, and wow. it's two and a half percent of global GDP. So it's it's a massive industry. Thirty or forty percent of Australians now have got a good sense that they're eating too much meat and it's not good for them, um, and so they, they actively want to reduce their meat consumption. We want people to keep eating meat, but we just want them to eat it made from, in our case, uh, fungi and and plants rather than uh, rather than animals. And so, yeah, between Chris and Jim, they know everything there is to know about growing mushrooms, the science behind them, and how to cook them. Um, I bet they're fun and they guys. actually. But I'm going to assume being in the in the mycelium space, they're they're, they're, they're going to have uh, yeah a, a very a very alternative perspective on them anyway. They, they certainly do, yeah, yeah. And you should stick to business coaching and, and not comedy. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, Michael Fox. Fox by name, Fox by nature. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Kerwin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Mate, really good to catch up. It's great to have you on. And I, I mentioned just before we jumped on, while we we're trying to work out my uh, my skin condition, um, <laughs> that we we actually spoke. I think it's about ten years ago now, when you were um, you know you're knee deep in in shoes of prey, um, and that's well, I was kind of I was I was more than kind of excited. I was I was really excited to have this conversation to really reflect on not just the last ten years. But um, you know the rest of the journey and how it's culminated to where you are today. So, mate, just in a nutshell, I, I always ask my guests this question, and it's a bit of a curveball. But I say, you know, if you're at a dinner party and nobody knows who you are, and there's eight people sitting around the table, and it's the beginning of the night, and the attention turns to you, and someone asks you this question, so what do you do, Michael? How do you normally answer that question? It's a good question. Well, it's it's changed in the, it's changed a few times over the last few years, I guess. But um, right now, um, yeah, I'm passionate about helping to contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture, and um, I've got a business, Fable. We develop uh, meat alternate, delicious, healthy meat alternatives to help people reduce their meat consumption. And um, mate, you've, you've, you're a bit of a pedigree, a bit of a thoroughbred. You do have a bit of a history because you started back. When did you start your first venture? Yeah, it was back. Um, actually, we launched in 2008. Uh, we launched Shoes of Prey. Um, so, yeah, we must have been talking. A, we, we caught up a couple of years into Shoes of Prey. Yeah, so it's been a been sort of a good 12, 13 years in the startup tech space. Yeah. And here we are today. So, mate, where does your journey begin? Like, ha, ha, have you been a, an entrepreneur? Like, I know we've obviously spoken once before, but I want to go back a little bit further perhaps to where it all began. Where did your entrepreneurial kind of um, interest come from? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think I probably, you know, I probably always had that sort of built into me, like my parents and my grandma kind of tell stories about me sort of wanting doing lots of entrepreneurial things as a kid and wanting to play shops with all my cousins and trying to round my grandma up to sell 
seeds and plants and different things uh, to help me sort of set up a business, but actually trying to get her to do all the work and, and me sort of just manage and boss her around. Um, so I think it probably was like, it's it's probably built into me. <laughs> it, was, it started early. And is it, did this come from yeah. the environment? Like was mum and mum or dad in business, grandma in business? No, mum was an accountant. Dad was a mining engineer. So, um, so no, it didn't. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe, maybe I've got a little bit of ADHD and yeah, kind of don't, don't sort of, yeah, don't sort of like going sort of necessarily always going sort of the traditional paths. Yeah. I think I've just always wanted to, liked and enjoyed doing kind of fun and new and exciting things, which yeah, probably lends itself a bit more to entrepreneurship. So I'm going to assume with, with that statement, school wasn't exactly your strong point. Um, actually, I mean, I can I can force myself to do it, and I did I did okay in school, and I ended up studying law and got qualified as a solicitor. So, and I think like it wasn't me that wasn't like my natural inclination or instinct at all, and I didn't enjoy doing that sort of thing. But I think it was in hindsight, it was actually good because it did teach me like it forced I forced myself to learn like attention to detail and those kinds of things. But yeah, now I do my best to try and avoid it because it's yeah, it isn't definitely isn't what comes naturally to me. But having a law degree in business has got to be something that's pretty handy, I've got to assume. Yeah, I mean that is helpful. Yeah, 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 and, and the kind of discipline around yeah studying and all that kind of stuff. That, that and how did you end up in law? Uh, I think I like finished high school and it was like, well, what do I do next? Um, yeah, I enjoyed like debating in high school, um, and so yeah, I thought maybe law would be the kind of closest path to to that. Uh, and then, yeah, finished my law degree and I'd done I, at the University of Queensland, I did commerce and law and I'd gone and done all the kind of internships that you do with a commerce law degree. I'd, I'd done one, actually, I'd done one in an accounting firm, really didn't like that. Did one in an investment bank, really didn't like that. Actually, I hadn't done an internship at a law firm by the time I finished. And so it was like, well, well that's all that, that must be all that's left to do. So I'll go get a job at a law firm. And yeah, I, it wasn't, didn't suit me at all. I, I left within the year. Yeah, yeah. right. That quickly. Yeah, yeah. And what came next? Yeah, well, I kind of found myself like I was, I was working at um, yeah, one of the big national law firms and yeah, bored. Like I'd get to the end of the day, I'd jump on the train to go home and I'd like open back then Business Review Weekly, the magazine, and I'd just be reading Business Review Weekly and reading about all these entrepreneurs and, you know, the Atlassian guys were just getting started. They were starting to get a bit of coverage in, in that magazine. Yeah, reading about lots of different interesting businesses. And that's what I'd read on the train on my way home and when I'd get home. And then I'd come back into the law firm the next day and I'd like completely forgotten about what I was working on the day before because my head just, heart just wasn't in it. My head just wasn't in it. And so, yeah, I figured like, oh, well, I must, I like reading Business Review Weekly. Maybe I should go work for one of these companies that's getting written about. Um, and I managed to get connected into uh, Super Cheap Auto, the retailer. Yeah, right. Um, they're headquartered, headquartered in Brisbane and they were doing a graduate program. So, went and did a two-year graduate program there, kind of working through all the departments in their business. And yeah, that was my wow. kind of introduction, I guess, to the more the business world as opposed to law. And then and yeah, so you, kind of fell in love with retail doing that too. That's so interesting. So you spent two years working through every single department in the organization of Supercheap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And at the time, I was going to assume they were probably like a $100 million plus organization, yeah? Yeah, they're probably, I think they're turning over about... Three hundred million at the time. They had sort wow. of two two hundred odd stores. Um, yeah, so it was a good sized business, like yeah. big enough that there was lots of stuff, you know, going on, lots to learn, uh, but small enough that two years you could I could fully understand the business. You know, like I managed a store over for three months over Christmas. Worked in the warehouse for a couple of months, picking and packing, and understanding how all that side of things worked. Worked in HR, finance, the buying team, 
So yeah, it was a good good kind of training. What an excellent opportunity. And Supercheap's a household name, obviously here in Australia. Like what were some of the biggest takeaways that you learned working for those guys? Yeah, I kind of fell in love with retail. Like I love the um, the whole sort of understanding the consumer and developing like a range of products to present to that consumer in a physical in a yeah physical retail store. You know what what should the whole range and the full offer be to bring customers into store? Love the whole kind of marketing side of the business. You know the logistics and operations, like sourcing different products from from China and other places around the world, and how you ship that here efficiently, and how you manage your stock and yeah, just I, I just really kind of enjoyed all those uh, learning about all those elements of like a physical kind of business and physical products. Did you end up with like a fully sick WRX at the end of it, or <laughs> I had a? I think when I started, I had a 1962 Chrysler Valiant, and then a, uh, then I ended up with a what was it a 1989 Porsche 944 Turbo? Um, yeah, right. Yeah, that was a really that was a really fun car. So yeah, yeah, I I, I always enjoyed my cars. Yeah, you got into it. And so after Supercheap, yeah. what came next? Yeah, so I finished up at Supercheap, and I kind of they they were actually just working on um, a, a bicycle business, which they've since shut down. But it was I think it was called Gold Cross Cycles. So they were working doing a startup basically within um, Super Cheap Auto. And I wanted to get on that team. Like I, you know, I wanted to work on a startup, doing something new. Uh, and they only had two people on it. They kind of couldn't justify when I finished the grad program, they couldn't justify the expense of having a third person on it. So I ended up in like this boring merchandising data analyst role, which is wasn't, again, wasn't me. It was back to more like being a lawyer. So um, I ended up, I've been reading a lot about Google. Google were kind of just built, this was in 2007, 2008. So Google, no, yeah, no, earlier than that, 2000, 2006. So Google would just kind of, they'd opened their office in Sydney maybe a year before. They were sort of at about 30 people. Um, so I ended up applying there and getting an advertising sales role at Google. Um, ended up applying when they were about 30 people. By the time I joined, they were about 100 people. They were like ramping up yeah, really, wow. really fast. So then I did advertising sales at Google for two and a half years. I'm going to assume that was a pretty awesome experience to get exposed behind the scenes, behind the veil of Google. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that was that was my introduction to kind of the tech space. Right. Um, yeah, got to spend time at their headquarters in California and spent three months at their European office in Dublin, met lots of awesome people, got kind of, yeah, that whole sort of tech Silicon Valley culture, got sort of indoctrinated by all of the excitement of that. Um, and at that point in Australia, Google was basically a startup. So it was, yeah, it was you know, with a hundred hundred people, one year one year old one year old business in Australia, um, it was yeah super exciting time to be working there and felt very yeah felt very startupy. So I think that also gave me that bit more of a startup introduction too. I think most people would probably kill to get the opportunity to work inside Google. Like, what were the biggest lessons that you took from from that time with them? Yeah, um, I think a lot of the cultural aspects of like how to motivate um, like really kind of talented driven people. So yeah, having a lot more sort of Free, you know, it's, it's certainly at a law firm, it's like very kind of, you know, you wear your suit and tie and go and work in your office, uh, literally shut the door in your office, like very kind of old school culture. Super Cheap Auto was kind, kind of a lot more progressive, um, but still it was a, a lot of, uh, you know, most of the workforce was kind of retail staff members and sort of uh, it, it had a very different cultural vibe. And then Google, yeah, obviously, you know, at the, that time it was winning all the best place to work in the world awards. Um, like yeah, just really fun, exciting culture that and a strong sort of performance-driven culture. Um, 
What's yeah, the one, so I think I probably took took a lot of that away. What's the one thing you've seen in their culture that you think is is applicable to any business that is easy to apply and actually quite scalable? Um, I mean, I, th- I think fairly simple, like hire hire talented people, um, set them like or set kind of goals that they need to aim for, and then get out of their way uh, other than where they kind of need need a bit of coaching and help. Yeah, right. Um, but basically, don't yeah, don't sit there and micromanage what they're doing. Like yeah. High talented people set goals and then let them go. So I'm going to assume at this stage, is this where shoes of prey had started bubbling in the background? Yeah. So I think like, yeah, I'd always had that sort of entrepreneurial bent. Um, the financial crisis hit kind of 2000, end of 2008. Um, Google kind of battened down the hatches. So a lot of the things that I loved about working there, like the ability to go work in different offices, they kind of cut, cut off that stuff to keep costs down. Um, which is understandable. Um, they like introduced all these new lev- levels to get promoted because they wanted to slow down the rate that people were getting promoted to slow down sort of growth in wages. Um, and so it kind of some of that got a little bit over the top. Like I think my boss ended up being like six rungs ahead of me on the ladder and it was a minimum of two years to get a promotion. So it's going to take me like 12 years to get to the level my boss was at. So I think they've fixed some of those things. But but I just got the sense that, okay, Google's getting bigger. It's getting a bit bureaucratic. It's changing. This is the best place to world, in the world to work. And I'm still not, um, yeah, still not fully satisfied. So maybe I need to go and start something myself and try and build the culture and the kind of company that I want to build. So did you go from Google to Shoes of Prey or was there a, an intermission? Yeah, no, no, I kind of went straight straight to it. So I was probably, I was kind of working weekends on Shoes of Prey, sort of had the idea and the concept of doing that. Um, spent probably seven or eight months kind of working on that, working on Shoes of Prey evenings and weekends, and then got that to the point where, okay, we feel comfortable and if we want to have a shot at this, we've got to do it full time. So for those people who don't know who Shoes of Prey, Shoes of Prey was quite a successful startup where you actually had a um, online um, e-commerce store where women could go on there. My wife, my ex-wife, I should say, actually customized her wedding shoes on oh, uh, on your sh- on on shoes of prey, and they could customize their shoes to basically build them out ha- however they want. <clears throat> and I remember at the time thinking, "Wow, this is absolutely fucking revolutionary." How did you you guys come up with the idea, the concept, and what was the gradual evolution before you bit the bullet and then just jumped in? Yeah, so. The, we were kind of looking for the three of us co-founded the business and our skill sets, we kind of had a mix of retail, tech and marketing and branding experience. Yeah. Um, we wanted to, we could see this was back 2008, um, online retail in Australia was in the really, really kind of infant stages and we could see that was going to grow over the next sort of decade. So we figured, all right, let's go do, let's go do online retail. We, we've got the skill sets to do that. Um, then we were looking for a product that was like unique and different and interesting. Um, and then uh, Jody, uh, my ex-wife and one of our co-founders, whenever she would, whenever we'd do holidays to Europe, she'd book stopovers in Hong Kong. And there were little stores in Hong Kong where you could design your own shoes. And she'd come back to Australia from holidays and all her friends would ask, see all these amazing shoes she'd designed and be like, oh, where'd you get those shoes? And she's like, I designed them myself. And so um, we could see that there was yeah, interest in that from consumers. And so we figured, oh, why don't we try and scale that, you know, rather than just doing it in a little retail store in Hong Kong, let's turn that into a kind of online business where people can do that online. And you guys had a pretty good run with that, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, this full startup roller coaster. Like uh, yeah. we, we started out um, first two and a half years, we just grew the business organically out of its own cash flow. We kind of got to two or three million a year revenue run rate doing that. Um, and then we had all these consumers coming to our website, um, uh, like 
tens of thousands of women a day coming to our website, but really, really low conversion rates. And so, you know, we did, did a lot of uh, focus groups and interviews and talked to these customers coming to the website. And what they told us was, um, and what we realized was that these were mass market customers. We'd been doing really well in this niche of women who are creative and passionate about designing and then right. some sub-niches like wedding shoes, like, uh, like you, you, you experienced. Um, but we weren't nailing the mass market. But then, um, well, yeah, we had all these mass market consumers coming to the website. So we, uh, we interviewed them and what they told us was, yes, we love the idea of designing our own shoes, um, but we need you to do three things before we'll purchase. So one, um, we want a faster lead time. We've taken about five weeks to deliver shoes, which yeah, when it's your wedding, you're planning more than that in advance. But when it's <clears throat> you're a mass market customer, you're ordering for an event. So people said they wanted yeah, sub two week right. delivery times. They didn't want to pay the pre- 30% premium that we were charging and they wanted a much more simplified shoe design experience. So we looked at those three things and we said, all right, we can deliver on those, but we're going to need to go and raise capital because uh, to bring the lead times down and the unit costs down, we're going to have to build our own shoe factory because our suppliers just weren't, weren't going to be able to scale making shoes one at a time. It's a very different process and it wasn't something they wanted to do or that anyone else in the world did. Um, and then secondly, we needed to hire more software engineers and user experience people to simplify that shoe design experience. So we went out and raised venture capital. Um, so we ended up raising $35 million over, over four rounds of funding over sort of five or six years. Um, and that was to s- scale up the yeah, manufacturing uh, and uh, simplify that shoe design experience, bring the lead times down, bring the unit costs down. Uh, we then went and uh, went to where those mass market customers were. So we had iP- we did partnerships with David Jones in Australia and Nordstrom in the US. So you could design shoes on iPads in their stores um, and then and then order them. Um, so yeah, we we're kind of in this. Yeah, we, we moved our headquarters from Sydney to Los Angeles because the US had become our biggest market. I spent spent four years living in Los Angeles um, doing shoes of prey there. Um, yeah, so all these kind of good things heading in the right direction, and then ultimately, um, ultimately, we just we delivered that value proposition to the mass market customer. So in our last year of operating, we delivered shoes on average in eleven days from when you ordered to wow. when you received your shoes. We brought our, we charged the same price in a, as you would pay for the same quality shoe in a retail store, and you could shop a range of shoes like you would on any regular website, uh, and then make modifications and tweaks to it. So we simplified the shoe design experience. So we delivered exactly the value proposition that the mass market customer told us she wanted, and our sales grew. Like we grew from that sort of two or three million revenue run rate to about ten or twelve million a year. Um, but we we should have been at like a hundred million if the value proposition was resonating properly, yeah. and those twenty thousand women a day were you know a good portion of them. Or normal e-commerce conversion rates were were applying. We should have been doing a hundred million a year in revenue, and we needed to be doing like thirty a year to break even because we now had all these fixed costs of the running a shoe factory and software engineers, and we were stuck at like ten or twelve million a year, and. So what we realized was we went back and looked at, well, you know, why, why is the value proposition not resonating? And we could now watch how consumers behaved when they shopped our shoes on- online. And what we realized was that mass market consumer, um, consciously she thinks she wants to customize. Like if you ask her, she'll tell you that she wants to. She loves the idea of designing her own shoes. But deep down subconsciously, she actually doesn't want to. She wants to see what's popular in fashion magazines, what's popular mm. on Instagram, mm. and buy not only that design but even buy that brand, yeah. um, which is the antithesis of customising. And, and your subconscious is more powerful than your conscious 
mind. So the subconscious was driving a decision making, which was, I love the idea of designing my own shoes, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, um, wow. And so our value proposition just didn't work with that mass market consumer. We kind of couldn't cross the chasm from our sort of niche creative consumer and wedding consumer into the mass market. And uh, yeah, ultimately, we ended up closing the business down because we just couldn't scale it. And I remember when um, when I first heard, like I remember I was like, what? No. And I think a lot of people um, were really cheering for you guys because, you know, you were this Australian startup success story. You guys had, you know, done an incredible job of getting yourselves essentially onto a global platform from a visibility perspective. Uh, and then you had to shut it down. Like, do you remember that decision or do you remember that day or the lead up to that day where you made that decision? Can you talk me through that? Yeah, it was, it was uh, December. It was kind of the lead up to um, would have been December 2017. Uh, and we'd like just kind of nailed our lead times. You know, we were well under a good 11, 11 days, like good three days under our two-week lead time target. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd launched, done some really good launches on the website that was simplifying the shoe design experience. The website looked amazing. The shopping experience was amazing. Um, pricing was spot on. And we got to the end of de- we got to December and looked at our revenue numbers and just realized this is just not ticking up the way that it should be and the way that we're expecting it to. Um, you know, this, this isn't working we're, we're, and we're running out of cash. Um, and so we kind of made a decision at that point, we we're going to try and we tried a few pivots. So we looked at, for example, the, that wedding segment and thought through, could we, if we focus just on wedding shoes, could that get us to break even? And uh, yeah, it just wasn't, that wasn't going to work. Uh, we also looked at extended sizes because making shoes one at a time, we can do narrow, wide, short, short and long shoes. And, and actually widths is really interesting because two thirds of people should be wearing a non-standard width. They should be wearing a narrow or a wide shoe. Um, but the market doesn't supply narrow and wide shoes because the inventory would just be too too big for a business to carry. But making shoes on demand, we could do that. But we looked at that segment of the market too and just the, the education piece to convince people that they're wearing the wrong, to tell people they're wearing the wrong size shoe and then the tech to be able to get the sizing right and then the subjectivity of even if you've got the right pair of shoes, it might not feel comfortable to you because yeah, you, you've got a different. You might have a different personal view on it. So that segment, that pivot, we could see wasn't going to work. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty. Uh, yeah, it was a, that was a pretty shitty time. And so the day, the day you made. I'm going to assume this was a. There was no day where you're like, right, we've got to do it. Oh, that's it, it is what it is. I'm going to assume it was a lead up, a period. And um, how long was that period before you had to bite that bullet and make that tough decision? Yeah, so it's probably like. I mean, it was like. In, it was like taking a band-aid off slowly yeah, like right. the way that we did it um which was pretty painful like we we um yeah like we thought okay when we decided to make that pivot we um we cut some of the team uh we probably halved the size of the team so we went from maybe 200 people down to 100 people um and then uh then we yeah when we realized those pivots weren't going to work um we cut down Further, we ended up sort of cutting down to about 30 people to see if we could then sell um, the business or sell, you know, the factory or some of the assets in the business. Uh, that didn't work, so then we ended up shutting down. So it was a good kind of two or three sort of painful steps over probably eight months before we um, finally made the call. You know, we tried, tried to pivot, tried to sell, um, and then finally made the call to shut down. Was that a pretty tough period of your life? Yeah, I mean, it, it was. Um, yeah, yeah, and... And, you know, like so we'd had uh, 23 people move from Australia to the US with the company when we moved our headquarters and most of them were still with us in LA. So, and, you know, some of our really they developed into really close friends 
Um, you know, we ha had a really strong and vibrant culture. When we'd done that move, we'd had 25 people in the Sydney office and 23 of the 25 moved with us from Sydney to LA. So wow. it was a really strong, tight-knit group and, and strong culture. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was like, yeah, it was really painful to then have to let those people go. I mean, we'd, we'd been op very open about everything along the way. You know, people could see the numbers, so it didn't come as a shock to people. Um, um, but it was still, you know, it was tough to tough to have to let people go and, and say goodbye. Um, and then, yeah, just th that side of it. And then personally, as a co-founder, you know, you go into some, go into starting a business with this it's dream. Your baby. Of, yeah. Yeah, to, totally. Ten, ten years of your life and this dream of creating something big and then, yeah, then that doesn't uh, doesn't play out the way that you you dreamed it would. You know, that's um, that, that's that's also tough. And then not not returning money to the, you know thirty five million dollars, not returning that money to investors. That um, that was a personally painful thing. You know, our investors get it. They 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 were they were really good about it. Um, yeah. And and some of those have invested uh, into Fable now. Um, but yeah, it's still painful not not being able to give them a return on their money or even give them their money back. When you finally made that decision after eight months of slowly pulling off the Band-Aid, was there a little bit of relief? Yeah, I think the kind of, yeah, there was. Like the, um, yeah, it had been a painful eight months um, when I finally, yeah, made the decision that that, that, that was the point for me to leave the business. Um, uh, you know, I had to leave the US because my visa was tied to um, Shoes of Prey. Um, my wife, Katrine, was pregnant with our second child so we had to end like seven months pregnant so wow. we had to actually leave pretty quickly because she wasn't gonna be able to fly again soon um so we were kind of for yeah sort of forced into making some quick decisions um but we ended up going to she's my wife's danish so we went to denmark and spent six months in denmark and had our second child over there and i just had a good solid six month break and uh, it was awesome like yeah that that was a real I think I needed it, uh, like for my mental health after that experience of uh, the last eight months with Shoes of Prey, and um, yeah, it was an awesome experience. Just being in a going to a completely different physical environment, being able to think about completely different things, focusing on family. Um, that that was good. And in those six months, like, what were the biggest lessons that you learned in those six months? Because I'm going to assume after you know taking those six months off, you're not having to deal with uh, investor relations, team culture. <laughs> factories, fuck-ups, you know, you've gone from this, you know, I'm going to assume a, back, a world that was pretty much back-to-back -back for a 10-year period because, you know, it was 10 years of startup yeah. land basically uh, to all yeah. of a sudden now everything just fucking stops and you've yeah. now got time, you've now got space, you've now got the ability to not only recalibrate physically, mentally, emotionally, but, you know, maybe also even spiritually. I'm going to assume there was, gonna, gonna, there was some serious reflection during those six months oh, totally. as well. And what were the biggest yeah, things yeah. that you came away with after those six months down? Um, I think, uh, I mean, it was probably the be one of the best decisions I've made in my life was to actually take six months off and not yeah. go jump into something else straight after because, I mean, I think I would have struggled to do that anyway, um, just, just mentally. But um, oh, it, was just so, it was just, you know, uh, like, you know, hadn't really had a proper holiday in a decade and it was just so nice to just be able to just switch off. And I think it helped even going to a different part of the world in, in a new sort of different environment. Um, you know, I started, I was sleeping better, um, eating better, like, yeah, so much, so much healthier physically. Um, and just had the time and the headspace to, I didn't force like thinking through what I was going to do next. I literally just did what I kind of, you know, spent a lot of time being a dad and did a, just a lot of other kind of random things, played computer games with friends in Australia that I hadn't, maybe hadn't connected with that much in a few years. And, 
Um, and then just read a lot of books, like read, read a lot of books and just kind of wherever my intellectual curiosity went, I just ran with it. Whereas, you know, when you're in startup world, you're trying to like read business books and focused on things that are going to help your business. I, I got the chance to, yeah, just, just do you remember sort of do whatever I felt like. What you read during that period? Yeah, well, I ended up, um, uh, I ended up uh, like going down, the, the, it was a very different experience actually to the lead up to starting Shoes of Prey. So I ended up just reading about different things in the world that I was passionate about. So for example, one area that I read a lot about was, uh, you know, I think in today's society, like there's a lot of loneliness, a lot of mental health issues. And I think a lot of that comes down to the way that we live. Like a lot of people live literally in apartments apart from each other. You know, you can live in an apartment and not know the person who is physically one metre away from you. Um, whereas we kind of evolved as humans to live in much more kind of communal um, structures. And, and it's particularly visible having young kids like trying to look after two young kids, two and a four-year-old on your own at home in lockdown, it's like a real challenge to keep them entertained. Mm. But as soon as there's other kids around or other people around, they're kind of engaged. You can just see like naturally we lived, we clearly lived in larger kind of family groups than the, the way our society is structured today. So I spent a, t- and a lot of time reading about the history of that and actually Denmark was a great place to go and explore that because yeah, wow. about 1% of the population in Denmark actually live in different um, in kind of not communes, but kind of much more communal structures where, you know, there might be an apartment block with a shared kitchen and all the, everyone in the apartment block comes together and has dinner twice a week in the apartment block. Wow. Um, and they might share, the kids might kind of go between apartments and, you know, just much more social sort of structures. So I spent a lot of time exploring that, which I found fascinating. And then the other area I ended up exploring a lot was um, I'd gone vegetarian. Uh, I've been vegetarian now for about five years, um, for me, a mix of ethical, environmental and health reasons. Um, and so I ended up reading a lot more about industrial animal agriculture. Um, and I'd been just as a consumer, I'd been eating all the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and everything else. And so read a lot more about those businesses and that space. Um, and yeah, also just found that found, and, and cell based meat and just found that whole space really interesting. Um, and so then when it was coming towards the end of the six months off, um, those were the two areas that I'd sort of gravitated around because uh, yeah, I could see they were, they were two in- interesting areas that I felt very personally, very passionate about, you know, wanting to either con- help contribute to, you know, reducing society's loneliness or help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. So we kind of decided, yeah, we'd, we'd come back, we wanted to come back to Australia um, at sort of around the end of the year. I mean, it was middle of winter in Copenhagen's a pretty miserable time, but so we figured we'd stay for Christmas and then uh, we flew back sort of between Christmas and New Year's and, yeah, we, we knew we wanted to come and live back in Australia. Um, so, yeah, we were coming to the – coming to, as, as we were coming towards the end of those six months, um, obviously started to think about what I was going to do next. And after having done all that reading, I was kind of very passionate about wanting to work on one of those two problems, either trying to help society reduce the kind of level of loneliness in society um, or helping to contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. So I started to think about – what are the best ways I can contribute to those two things? Um, on the industrial animal agriculture side, I uh, kind of realised I, I wasn't going to make a very good activist. I'd like tried to convince lots of people around me to turn vegetarian. I think I've convinced two people and <laughs> one of them I caught up the other day and he's not even vegetarian anymore. So I'm obviously no good at that. Um, and then on the uh, loneliness side, I, I just couldn't think of a... I just couldn't think of a way to fix that. Like I thought about all sorts of angles, thought about like different business models, you know, could, could you, 
Could you become like a property developer who sets up properties that have this sort of structure so that people can come in and live together, but a whole bunch of flaws in that sort of model. Um, but what I ended up coming back to was, well, okay, the middle, in the middle, in the ending industrial animal agriculture, people love the taste and texture of meat. Um, if you can deliver that to them using something other than animals to make it, um, you know, there's a pretty clearly, a, that's a pretty clear good value proposition and companies like Beyond Meat and Possible Foods in the US were kind of in the midst of proving that out. Um, and so I figured, yeah, I'll, okay, I'll go into the alternate protein space um, and, yeah, yeah. And, and initially, actually, I thought I'll go, I'll go work in that space. I'll work for somebody else. I didn't want to go do another startup. So I thought I'll try and join Beyond or Impossible or join an Australian startup in that space. Um, so I came back to Australia, but there were just no, no jobs or at least no jobs for a washed up entrepreneur in that category. Um, everyone was a very new, new startup in, the, in Australia and the international players weren't hiring in Australia. So I kind of ended up with a decision of, okay, do I, do I go and get a job in a business or, you know, a business category that I'm not necessarily that passionate about, or if I want to do this and, you know, help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture, you know, I'm probably going to have to start a business myself because there's, there's no jobs, so there's no other option um, if I want to do that. So ended up um, deciding to go down the path of, uh, of starting a meat alternative business. I'm going to assume in the background here, you're already kind of formulating what the products are going to look like because uh, I'm going to assume you don't just make the decision, you know, I'm going to go to meat alternatives and go, right, uh, fuck, I'm going to make a soy burger. I'm going to make a soy burger or a chickpea. Like yeah. how, do you, how did you navigate that space during this, during this period? Yeah, so no, you're right. Like all of this was happening in at the in parallel. Um, I was yeah, so I was thinking through. Okay, if I start an alternate protein business, uh, how what, how should I go about that? And I and I didn't want to compete head to head with Impossible or Beyond because they've raised a lot of money and they've got good products. Um, so I was thinking, okay, well, uh, well, first thought I had actually was I'm a pretty healthy eater. Um, shop at my local farmers markets, do a lot of my own cooking, bake my own sourdough, brew my own kombucha, um, and I eat a pretty like healthy whole food, minimally processed diet. Um, and so, and and the Beyond and Impossible burgers, not that they're unhealthy, they're, they're quite good products, but um, they've yeah they're not not they don't have an all natural list of ingredients, and they use textured vegetable protein as their base. I heard ingredient. Dave Asprey fucking writing them off yesterday. I was actually quite shocked. Oh, really? He was offered. A, yeah. He said if I was offered a choice between an indu- piece of industrial meat and a Beyond Burger, he goes, I'd go the industrial meat. And I was like, okay, I've clearly missed something along the lines here. Like, is there a little bit of a, a, a resistance forming towards the the, the 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 beyond and the impossible foods? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Dave, there's going a little bit far. Like a an indus- like a, particularly in the US, like industrial produced meat that's got yeah the animals been fed hormones and uh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that was a pretty big things with that. If, he, if that was a, yeah, I, I don't know if he's got his own beyond meat burger. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe he's got his own little startup that he's got, he's got gearing up in the, in the sidelines and he's trying to gear up for it. Yeah, <laughs> he might have shorted their stock and so he's wanting to play it down. I, I, I would disagree with that statement, but, but, um, but they, you know, they, are, they aren't like perfectly, you know, you're better off eating, a, eating vegetables than, you know, health-wise, but, yeah. but they're, not trying to, they're not trying to do that either. They're trying to mimic meat. Um, using plants and uh, and not using animals, and they do a really good job of that. Yeah, they do. But yeah, on the scale of processing from 
say a you know banana completely unprocessed to say an Oreo, a highly processed food, um, textured vegetable protein, which they use as a base, you know, probably sits somewhere around the middle. So it's not that it's unhealthy, but it's just more processed than a straight up vegetable. Yep. Um, so, so my thought was, and I think there's a great place in the market for those products. And I think they're of excellent course. products yeah. and I eat them when I'm out at, a, out at a fast food burger joint. But my thought was, you know, when I'm cooking at home, I, I do eat a really minimally processed whole food based diet. So my thought was, could you produce a meat alternative that you know uses whole, a whole food whole food based ingredients and doesn't use anything artificial so it's, it's like completely natural and you know you've heard my background i have no food background whatsoever so i had no idea if that was uh that was possible um so i went out and started talking to lots of people in the food space and um a few chefs put me onto the idea of exploring using mushrooms as a base ingredient um mushrooms are obviously very healthy uh and they've got a lot of those natural meaty umami flavors in them so i started exploring mushrooms and then through exploring mushrooms met my two co-founders so uh, jim fuller grew up in texas fine dining chef for 12 years went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science and he majored in mycology which is mushroom science and then he's worked jim's worked as a mushroom scientist or a mycologist for the last 10 years so uh, chef and mushroom scientist in one human being uh, and then Chris McLaughlin co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. He was 2018 Australian Organic Farmer of the Year and Young Farmer of the Year. Um, and so, yeah, between Chris and Jim, they know everything there is to know about growing mushrooms, the science behind them and how to cook them. Um, I bet they're And they actually... But I'm going to assume being in the, in the mycelium space, they're, they're, they're going to have uh, yeah, a, a, very, a very alternative perspective on them anyway. They, they certainly do. Yeah, yeah. And you should stick to business coaching and, and not comedy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, so I met them, met Chris and Jim. They'd been uh, working on some mushroom-based meat alternatives um, uh, together. And, uh, yeah, we met up, got on like a house on fire, same goals, same mission that we wanted to work on uh, and very complementary skill sets. So we ended up co-founding Fable together. Um, and then the first product we've developed uh, is we're replicating. So Jim grew up in Texas eating all the slow-cooked meats like pulled pork, braised beef, beef brisket. So our first product replicates uh, those slow-cooked meats um, and it's 62% shiitake mushroom. So yeah, wow. really natural, healthy, whole food based. You know, shiitake mushrooms have been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years as a, as a, as a medicinal ingredient. Um, you know, Western science has caught up on that, all the, all the benefits of, uh, of particularly shiitake mushrooms. Um, and then the rest of our ingredient deck is just a short list of all natural plant-based ingredients. So nothing artificial, clean label. Um, so yeah, we kind of focus like number one is taste and texture. And I know you've got some samples on, on their way to you, so you'll get, you'll get to try it. Um, but yeah, real focus on taste and texture. Number one, products, product tastes amazing like those slow cooked meats do. And then, yeah, number two, making it uh, all natural, healthy, really good for you. And how have you how have you found when it comes to making it? And I know that's been the biggest thing for most people is how do you make a vegetable taste like a piece of meat? How, yeah. how do you think you've gone? Honestly, I wish I had had the chance to try it before we had this conversation. But from your perspective, I'm curious. 
Yeah, so so it helps to have a mushroom scientist slash chef as yeah. your uh, head of product development. So um, so mushrooms have got a lot of those natural umami kind of meaty flavors in them to begin with. And I don't know if you remember from like the late 80s, early 90s, there was the mushroom industry did a marketing campaign in Australia around like mushrooms and meat, meat for, for vegetarians. vegetarians. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they tried. That didn't, that didn't quite work. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they are like they're already in that direction. Um, and then, yeah, having a chef and mush- slash mushroom scientist um, working on. So we've got got some unique IP that we've developed around the cook steps that we use in how we create the product. And those cook steps change some of the protein structures in the mushrooms, which kind of tones down the mushroom flavors and amps up the sort of meaty umami flavors in the product. And then that coupled with mixing in the right um, natural plant-based flavors and ingredients, um, we end up with a product that's yeah got an amazing taste and texture um very much like those slow cooked meats and so what's your distribution model with with fable yeah so we started out and actually actually in the development process we set ourselves the goal of like okay we want to develop this product and we want a like world-renowned chef to like love it and want to use it so we sort of put together a list of uh of chefs that we wanted to take it to and number one on our list was heston blumenthal um he's a uh, British chef, yeah, three Michelin star restaurant, the Fat Duck, which was world's best restaurant in 2005. Jim, when he was working as a chef, had always like looked up to Heston as his idol because Heston was a very sort of scientific, he's a very scientific cook. So, um, and Jim and Chris had actually met Heston a few years earlier um, as Heston had been exploring the mushroom mushrooms as a food ingredient and had been introduced to Jim and Chris and they'd, they'd spent a, uh, probably four or five days together over the last few years before uh, we co-founded Fable. So we, um, we ended up meeting up with Heston while we are developing the product. He tried the product, uh, loved it, um, and he was, our, he was our initial launch partner. So he started using the product in his restaurants in the UK. Wow. And we did our launch event in December last year at Dinner by Heston in Melbourne. Um, so that kind of kicked off, uh, that sort of launched us. And then our first big customer was Marley Spoon, the meal kit company. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, so they started using and that was December last year too. They started using Fable in their in their meals, um, and uh, that partnership's gone really well. So they're now using us in their dinnerly recipe boxes as well. That they own that meal kit brand, and they're about to launch a ready meal um, using the product. So yeah, they've been a really really good partner for us. Fantastic food. I, I subscribe to Marley Spoon, and yeah, they're f- fantastic partners to work with. Um, then our next sort of phase of our rollout strategy was to roll out into and get distribution into cafes and restaurants. Um, obviously, that got a little bit of spanner in the works with COVID yeah. um, and restaurants closing down. Um, but we've we've still managed to get into in about a hundred cafes and restaurants around Australia now. In, in addition to Heston's restaurants in the UK, um, and then in April we launched into retail with Harris Farm uh, in in New South Wales, and then into six hundred Woolworth stores in June. Um, we're launching. This is the that's the product in the Woolworth stores. Um, you're getting a getting a couple of those. Fantastic, uh, to thank you. Then we're launching um, three ready meals into uh, Woolworths. So that's kind of what the ready meals look like. They're actually launching next week into the ready meals section. There's a, a Fable chili con carne, a Fable Rogan Josh, and a Fable stroganoff. Um, and then. Next month, we launch into, you know, end of October, we launch into Coles, into about 800 Coles stores. Uh, and then, yeah, we've got a big big pipeline talking to some of the, the major kind of quick service restaurant chains in Australia uh, and New Zealand and uh, also now going to start ramping up in the UK 
um, given that partnership with Heston. Mate, that's fantastic. How's the sell through? Because you're currently just in Harris Farms, is that right? Uh, Harris Farm in, and that base product in, in, in Woolworths. In Woolworths, so, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so that one's in the and they're moving kind of well. alternative section in Woolworths. Yeah, they are. Really, yeah, really well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say um, Marley Spoon's been an amazing customer. That, so the meal kits have been a really great channel for us. Um, food service has been fantastic, even, even with COVID. Um, you know, a lot of restaurants and cafes who've been able to pivot into uh, delivery at home. And now, obviously, Queensland and New South Wales pretty much open, open back up to normal. Um, so food service has been great. So we're, we're on the menu in all the Burger Urge stores. Um, they're a sort of 26-store chain up in Queensland. Uh, ribs and Burgers, um, they're actually all over the country. They, they do a beef, Fable Beef Brisket Burger. Um, we're in Asai Brothers. They do a Fable Taco. Um, so, yeah, yeah, quite a few of these, uh, these chains and then lots of independent restaurants and cafes. So those channels have been awesome for us. And then, yeah, I mean, retail's going great, but the initial product... First, the base product sold sold out in Woolworths in its first couple of weeks, and then Mate, off the back of that, well they've done. Taken on the ready meals. Yeah, Mate, thanks. well done. No, and so, how, how long has Fable actually been running now? So we launched in December 2019. Okay. So uh, what's that? We're kind of nine nine months wow. uh, since launch. Mate, well done. Yeah, I mean, we've no thanks. I mean, we're fortunate that like there's there's massive um, uh, tailwinds in the category. Like, you know, a lot of yeah. people wanting to reduce their meat consumption. You know, we, we haven't developed the product for the vegetarian or vegan customer. We're targeting the kind of the flexitarian who yeah right yeah is a meat eater but wants to reduce their meat consumption. You know, people have watched Game Changers or some you know documentaries like that, and have got a there's a good thirty or forty percent of Australians now have got a good sense that they're eating too much meat and it's not good for them. Um, and so they, they actively want to reduce their meat consumption, but they love the taste and texture of meat. So they don't want to eat a falafel ball or a hemp seed patty or a tofu burger. They want to eat something meaty. Yep. So if you can give them that taste and texture of meat, but make it from something other than animals and make it much healthier, then uh, that kind of ticks the box. And you guys recently just um, closed your first round of funding. Is that right? Yeah, we actually uh, actually closed funding um, just before we launched. So right. in October last year, okay. we raised a um, raised some money from um, a couple of our, our my old Choose a Prey investors, so Blackbird Ventures and Grok Ventures, yep. um, kind of co led the round, and then some food industry angel investors. Um, so that was that was kind of a real personal kind of. I've yeah, felt amazing to have those investors who, you know, I'd, I'd lost their money in my last business, but they, they kind of came back. Um, to, to Mate, this says a lot about you, doesn't it? Was, um, I, I mean, it, it says a lot about them too. Like I think um, they're, they're yeah, very supportive of entrepreneurs and, um, you know, they know that it's a, it's a risky game um, going and launching startups. And, yeah, it was it, it was really exciting to have them involved again. And at what point do you know whether or not you know, – I guess the question I'd ask at this point, how do you know when Fable is successful? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our, our mission is to help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. So, yeah. you know, that, that's setting the bar pretty high. Like we've got to build a pretty, <laughs> you know, to have it. It's a, the meat industry is a two trillion US dollar industry globally, and wow. it's two and a half percent of global GDP. So it's, it's a massive industry. And we want to switch, you know, people, we want people to keep eating meat, but we just want them to eat it made from in our case, uh, fungi and, and plants rather than uh, rather than animals. So, uh, you know, our mission is to help put a dent in in that, together with the other meat alternative companies out in the in the in the market. So, yeah, so we're a while away from uh, we're only kind of nine months into something that will hopefully be a you know, she's a prey was ten years. Hopefully, Fable will be uh, be, be even more than more than that. 
but the business, the commercial side of the business is running quite well operationally. Revenue is growing. You're hitting your run rates. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's so much easier doing a business the second time around. Like all the mistakes <laughs> that we made, shit's like prey. Right? Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Very similar, actually. That's that's a good analogy. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the stuff we've been able to achieve in nine months. You know, there was three or four years of. Or probably even five years of mistakes to get to the same level in shoes of prey and actually we're probably we're probably only a month or two off the revenue that we were at kind of halfway through the like five years into shoes of prey um so yeah it's it's yeah yeah and and it's the business is actually so incredibly similar you know it's fashion versus food yeah. they're two very different product categories but it's it's understanding the customer and the value proposition that the customer wants, although that's the same. It's uh, how do you manufacture the product? How do you do the logistics of getting the product to the customer? Who do you partner with? You know, we choose a prey. We partnered with David Jones and Nordstrom in Fable. We're partnering with Coles and Woolworths in retail. Um, we've got the added benefit in this business that there's Marley Spoons and food service channels as well. Um, it's building a brand uh, uh, and and speaking to customers authentically about what you're doing. All of those things are the same. It's just, um, yeah, refrigerated logistics versus ambient logistics and, you know, just a few little differences like that. Um, and mushrooms yeah. seem to be becoming quite popular. Like there's another there's another business, um, mushroom business that seems to be getting a lot of traction as well now, Lifecycle. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lifecycle, but they. No, um, oh, I am. Oh, I know those guys in Byron too. Yeah, they yeah. are in Byron. Actually, I, was, I caught up with Will Scott. I think he mentioned that he might um, might be, might have connected with you at some point. Yeah, we had a chat uh, kind of earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're great guys, and I, I love what they're doing. I've got some of their. Um, I think I've got their lines main uh, 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 in my fridge. Yeah, you take that. That stuff, yeah, that's great. I great stuff. Be careful with that stuff; it jacks me up. Um, <laughs> being a dad, like obviously now you're doing this second time round. You've now got kids. How have you found your lessons have translated from entrepreneurship, leadership? You know, running a team, building a team, high performance cultures, uh, to being a dad. And how's that translated and transitioned? <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's some similarities, I guess. It's also, yeah, I don't think, I think the worst employed, the wor- even the worst employee that we've ever had is not broken down in a tantrum in, in, a, in a shopping center when I'm out with them. So there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of differences too. But uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously being a parent, being a parent's just been a, an incredible like experience. Like, yeah, it's just, just such a thrill to have young kids around and uh, I mean I think actually I was reflecting on the that tough that really tough kind of last two years or so with Shoes of Prey Um, our first child was born in the middle of that yeah wow Um, and I think it actually helped keep me sort of grounded and able to reflect on okay Shoes of Prey is not going the way that we want it to you know having shit days like having to lay off a hundred people and you know just like not good experiences but the putting into perspective, like I've got this wonderful son, he's healthy, um, got an amazing wife, she's healthy. Um, you know, the health of your family, it's like a hundred X more important than, you know, a, a startup not going the way that you want it, you want it to. And, and, you know, it's, emotionally it doesn't feel like that, but being able to step back and think about that logically and kind of reflect on that and realize that, yeah, okay, life is about, you know, a startup, it feels like it's everything, but, um, life is about much more than that. And, um, yeah, don't get uh, try 
yeah, try to convince myself not to get too down in the dumps about about the those those challenges. So I think it, yeah, it was a good it was good for that perspective. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where or in circumstances where the situation has affected you quite badly and like you've you've had to pick yourself up? Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean during that during that two years, like oh, just the the anxiety in the lead up to a, like going to bed at night knowing that tomorrow I've got to tell a hundred people that they're losing their job yeah wow. um like that uh it's it's incredibly hard for the people that you're letting go and feeling yeah feeling that sort of weight of responsibility and that our strategic decisions and market research didn't work and that's what led to this point you know it's not it's not these people's fault that they're losing their job they're high performers they're doing the job that they are supposed to be doing and they're doing it really well it's just that the yeah the strategy and the customer research which is on me as the ceo and that, that's why you're letting them go you know that that that's a that's a pain that's definitely a painful experience and yeah going to, i mean not sleeping the night before doing those things and yeah. then you know afterwards the the yeah yeah just not yeah, those those were the really tough periods. Well, mate, we've covered a, a shit ton in the last uh, in the last hour, which is essentially reflected on. You know, I'm not sure how we can fit in ten years into one hour, but we've um, we've at least given people an insight. But um, mate, something I just want to acknowledge, like you've clearly been through the ringer. You know, I know you've been through the ringer, not just in business, but the media here in Australia. They 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 love the Aussie battler, but they also love to tear, give people a good tear at the same time. And so, mate, massive kudos to you for for hanging in there and jumping back in the ring to to have another go. It's clearly paying off for you, which is which is evident. And your humility is intact, mate, which is you know probably one of the most important things I think that you can have as an entrepreneur. Um, but I am curious to know, you know, in the last ten years in your own businesses and you know, 12, 13 years with the experience of being in other people's businesses as well. I, I guess it's going to be hard to, you know, distill all of that into one piece of advice that you could give to anyone and everyone that they could find some level of practicality. But what's the one piece of advice that you always find yourself giving or, or that you always in some cases give yourself in situations or circumstances where, you know, perhaps there there is a bit of an uphill battle? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's this, this is cliched, but in my experience, it's so true. Like if you're going to do something as in, tense uh as starting a business don't do it for the money do it do something that you're passionate about and then the success and financial success you know hopefully that follows but pick something that you're deeply passionate about and where that comes from in my own experience is in shoes of prey like i wasn't thinking how to you know something mission driven or how to do something good for the world it was women's sh- women's shoes as a fashion business and I was in it for the you know I wasn't even in it to wear women's shoes I was in it for the for the for the you know here's a retail business and a concept that looks like it there's a going to be product market fit you know it's very much a business financial decision and that and that you know I, I loved so many I was passionate about so many parts of that business all the manufacturing supply chain building a brand but I wasn't managed wasn't passionate about the product and I wasn't passionate about the mission whereas with Fable approached it from the complete opposite angle where I wasn't even thinking about starting a business. I was just like, what's the biggest problem in the world I want to work on and I want to help solve. And it it just feeds through into, and and I'm vegetarian and these kind of products appeal to me and it just feeds through into so many things. Like I have a much deeper understanding of the customer. Um, I I wake up on a Saturday morning, you know, I never used to wake up on a Saturday morning reading fashion magazines but I wake up on a Saturday morning now and I want to read about what's going on in the alternative protein industry. And um, that that level of passion and drive, I think, 
startups are still inherently very risky, but I think that gives us a much higher probability of success. And I think the space you're playing in now also um, plays to a lot more of a relaxed presentation as well. Like I think last time I saw you, you were in a three-piece suit <laughs> with a scarf in your pocket, <laughs> you know, repping the fashion brand. And, uh... <laughs> now I'm sitting here, here with a uh, fake meat next to me. <laughs> with your baseball cap, your great T-shirt. Like, I fucking love it, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to assume in that journey, like you've, and again, and this is no no judgment on the, the previous Michael that I interviewed, but you just seem a lot more relaxed, mate. You seem a lot more calm. You seem a lot more, yeah, you were humble back then, but there seems to be a greater sense of real human and humility within you now. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, that, that potentially also maybe comes through the journey of the of the highs and lows. You know, as much as, much as that two years that bad two years with Shoes of Prey was a not a pleasant experience and I hope not to live through it again. Like it was a very humbling experience and like I think my rate of learning in that period was probably higher than most other periods in my life. Um, you know, those kind of lows, there's a lot that you can draw from and learn from that experience and, yeah, so I, I you know, hope that, hope that helps me to be a better person and better entrepreneur having gone through that and I hope happy to share those lessons with other people if it's helpful too you're a fucking legend mate i've got to say i've really enjoyed this conversation i've got i've enjoyed getting to know you and more about your story as well um so for people who want to find out more about fable meats we'll put in the links below it's fablemeat.com is that right uh fab, fablefood.co fablefood and then um, on instagram at fablefoodco uh and then yeah you can find us in your local woolworth store in the refrigerated meat alternative section next week in the ready, refrigerated ready meals section and then uh, and then launching in Coles at the end of October too. Well, mate, I wish you guys nothing but every success with what you're doing and the mission you're on, yeah, is one that is is required. And I still like, I actually like your alternative mission around communities as well. It's interesting. That seems to be uh, a theme coming up with a lot of people these days. So, um, mate, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. No worries. Thanks so much for having me, Kerwin, and great catching up. Yeah, you too, mate. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Michael Fox. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.